Hi, we are Rini and Rebecca from the Euromarine Network. This is our Researchers in the Spotlight podcast, where we meet up with expert marine researchers from our network to hear their stories. To showcase their insights and highlight their groundbreaking achievements in the various special, rare and novel areas of marine science. Hi, Joao, and welcome to this new episode of the Euromarine Researchers in the Spotlight podcast. Let me first introduce you and thanks so much for joining us today. Um, you're a senior research fellow at the Center of Marine Sciences um, short CCMAR, located in the south of Portugal since 2006. And your main area of expertise is marine plant ecology and ecophysiology. And one of the focuses of your recent research has been specifically on the ecological impacts of climate change on seagrasses and calcifying macroalgae. You've coordinated and participated in more than 35 national and ECE-funded research projects and have also authored over 60 peer-reviewed publications. And you're also an invited assistant professor at the University of Algarve, teaching mainly marine plant ecophysiology and marine botany. And today we're here especially to talk about the foresight workshop that you were leading called the Rotocarp Workshop. Um, so before we go into detail about the specifics of the Foresight Workshop, I, I was just wondering, you have a very impressive biography, um, and what I noticed straight away is that a lot of your research is very focused around plant ecology and ecophysiology. Um, can you maybe just explain shortly to our listeners what the term ecophysiology means and how you got so interested in this field of research. Okay, well, let me start by by thank you for this opportunity also to convey the, some 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 of my impressions regarding this uh, this experience, which was my first experience with a with a Euromarine. Uh, and referring to your question, uh, ecophysiology is actually the, the the use of the physiological explanation for how plants and organisms, but in this case, plants respond to environmental variables. So it, it is it is a, a field of research that goes back to the beginning of, of plant physiology, in which uh, plant physiology traditionally just uh, searched um, to describe the main uh, physiological processes happening within plants. And ecophysiology came maybe a little bit uh, right after that, in, um, in in as 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 the pressure to understand the response of uh, plants to environmental stimuli and how that affects the internal processes of the plants um, was was happening, and and so nowadays and this is where my interest in this field appeared uh, in the context in the context of uh, particularly in the context of climate change, including uh, ocean acidification in the beginning and. More recently, the the, the onset of uh, marine heat waves. I've been trying to to and I've developed most of my research in trying to explain and trying to look at to how the physiological mechanisms of the of the of marine plants and seagrasses and calcifying macroalgae respond to these uh, dramatic changes in environmental conditions, namely acidification and and, uh, and heat waves. Um, because that that can gives us that can give us insights not just on how the organisms are responding nowadays, uh, 
but it also has um, a, a predictive potential in the sense that we can experimentally simulate uh, future scenarios based on IPCC projections. And we can try to anticipate a little bit of how uh, organisms by, by themselves will respond to future, uh, to future oceanic uh, conditions. That's very, very interesting. And um, as you said, very relevant, especially um, with the new era of heat waves, marine heat waves and ocean acidification. Um, and that lead me, leads me over to my next question very nicely that you've already briefly touched upon. Um, so the ecological impacts of climate change on seagrasses, can you give us an, an insight maybe a little bit into the biggest ecological impacts um, and what they mean for seagrasses um, and what you've maybe seen in your research already or found already? That's hmm. uh, that's interesting. Uh, it's a very interesting question because actually climate change is a complex. Uh, it's a very it's a simple term for a very complex uh, matter. Because when we when we refer to climate change, the first things that come to mind, uh, in the case of oceans, are uh, acidification and, and heat waves. But of course, there's other phenomena associated. But most of, most of all, um, usually these things don't 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 come alone, and so. Um, Often we have combination of these global, what we can call global stressors like acidification or heat waves, uh, which have, which often appear associated to local stressors, which which vary on location. And in some cases, these may be uh, terrestrial runoffs that increase uh, water turbidity, or can be uh, nutrient discharges by this or other reason that lead to eutrophication uh, uh, phenomena. And so it's often the combination of multiple stressors that is the that is the challenge, and of course it is it is a reality. Uh, it's becoming more and more uh, of a reality actually, and it's also a, a bigger a biggest a bigger challenge for us to simulate these conditions because we are more and more uh, thinking about complex scenarios, which are of course very difficult to simulate in control conditions in aquaria and mesocosm. Uh, experiments, but these are actually the 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 things for which we need answers. And the effects of climate change are, of course, as as diverse as the, as the combination of potential factors. So, if you choose uh, acidification, for example, seagrasses are more or less widely accepted to be sort of winners in between brackets and in, in the context of acidification because these plants are are limited in the amount of dissolved inorganic carbon that they have in the ocean. And so in the context of uh, higher atmospheric CO2 that then translates into also higher amounts of CO2 in, 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 in seawater, uh, these plants will respond positively in the, in, the, in, in, in regarding like photosynthesis growth. It is expected for them to be uh, to be, be benefited from this uh, from this from this phenomena. But of course, if if you think about it uh, as a combination of acidification with heat waves, for example, uh, then you have matters that are geographically distinct because species located uh, in in more critical areas are some some species are more sensitive to to heaters than others, and in some cases, and we we've done some trials on that as well, the combination of uh, of, uh, of heat waves with high CO two can be can be a bit of a problem because CO two stimulates metabolism, 
Uh, heat waves, on the other hand, tend to induce um, stress defense uh, processes that sometimes there are conflicts and these conflicts are in, in first hand are internal conflicts like in, in, in the context of um, in, in the plant's physiology and often not translated immediately into external uh, aspects. That's also why it is so important to look at the physiology inside because if we just stick to growth and uh, density and all these common parameters, which are of course useful, we we easily get misled and fail to understand the real causes, the underlying mechanisms that that uh, that can be of concern. That's very interesting. Climate change being such a complicated matter in the sense that you know you need to combine the um, not only the the overall stressors of like heat waves and ocean acidity, but then it, it's also combined with those local stressors, which can be different depending on on the on the location. And I think that gives us a as a good start point to go into depth um, of the Rotocarb Foresight workshop that you were leading. Uh, can you maybe just briefly introduce the research topic that you're um, that this foresight workshop was focused on and also maybe just describe the significance of it in the field of marine science. Okay, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, in terms of the, the, the overall goal, uh, these, uh, these rhodolites, these calcareous red algae, which are free-living uh, organisms in the seafloor, uh, they are in many ways a very uh, cryptic group. Um, both from their own existence and abundance, because we believe, and more and more, there's, there's, there is growing evidence that the, the the abundance of these algae is is largely underestimated. Because as time progresses and as uh, groups of scientists become more aware, and mapping efforts increase, we are finding literally finding new rhodolite beds uh, all over the world. And so the but the abundance of these algae is is probably much larger than we currently than we currently know, uh, and when and when I mean much larger, I mean by several orders of magnitude. Wow. And so it's a, it's a very very unknown group. It, this this happens for 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 some reasons. One of them is of course the fact that they grow underwater, and not so much at shallower waters like seagrasses, for example, which are in many cases in clear waters, you can see them from the surface. And so even a swimmer can 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 have a look at the seagrass meadow. Rodolith beds tend to be uh, more shy. And so they often start at, uh, at depths like 20, 30, 40 meters and extend even and extend deeper into deeper waters because they have this algae, they have a very low in general, of course, very low light requirements, and so they can grow. We we have there there is evidence of rodolith beds growing as deep as 150 50 meters, for example. So not even diveable uh, depths. So only by 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 submersibles. And so um, these algae, uh, cryptic in their in their in their abundance, are also cryptic in the sense of their um, ecosystem uh, function. What they, what is their role in in the different ecosystems they appear? Because they are rhodolith beds from the almost from the poles uh, to the equator, sort and northern and southern and northern hemisphere, all over the uh, in in all of the oceans, so inhabiting quite distinct uh, climatic regions, exposed to quite different conditions, 
And of course, there are different species comp that, that compose these, uh, these beds. Also, the taxonomy is extremely cryptical because their morphology and uh, uh, morphology-based taxonomy has for many years eluded us in, 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 in the names of the species, in the number of species, because different morphologies can correspond to one single species, but also uh, the same morphology can actually uh, can actually be uh, present in, in, in different species. And so in, you dive one rodolith bed, uh, we, we can morphologically think that it's all the same species, and in fact, it can be three or four different species. So new species are also appearing for science in this uh, in this ongoing uh, field of research. So this is the, this is the, the 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 background regarding the group itself. And then there's also the fact that, and this is this is um, uh, what makes uh, rodolites a bit different from uh, from from marine plants and, and macroalgae in general is the fact that they have these calcareous structures. In their life cycle, they deposit huge amounts of, of calcium carbonate in, in, in the space between the cells, in some cases within the cells, and they grow extremely slow because of this, of course, because calcium carbonate precipitation takes forever. And so these algae grow at rates like from half a millimeter to one millimeter per year. So extremely low rates, uh, which also makes them very, very uh, um, um, uh, longer. So they can they can live forever. They live for more than a hundred years, a single individual. And so these are very stable uh, benthic deposits of calcium carbonate, and it is believed that they are the largest biogenic uh, calcium carbonate deposits in the ocean. Now, the thing is that this process of calcification, while we have in all the plants and macroalgae, you have photosynthesis that captures uh, CO2, and you have respiration that, that produces CO2. And then you have calcification on these organisms occurring at the same time. And calcification, while it precipitates calcium carbonate, and so removes carbonate from seawater and uh, precipitates it in these uh, in these uh, in, the, in these in the structures of the organisms it also releases uh, carbon dioxide which is often recuperated it's often used immediately for photosynthesis but chemically it is it is it is a, it is a source classification it is a source of co2 so when we think about the uh, first of all the the metabolic effect of these organisms in, 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 in the water, we have to take into account these three reactions at the same time, photosynthesis, respiration, and calcification. And ultimately, it is the budget between the carbon that is cycled in all of these three processes that has to be considered when we want to define a rhodolite bed as being, for example, autotrophic or heterotrophic, meaning is it a CO2 source or is it a CO2 sink, which is extremely relevant because in, in the global uh, ocean cycle, and if we think about the, the, the extent that these organisms um, cover, knowing whether they are a source or a sink of CO2 is highly relevant because they are certainly important players in, in the global carbon cycle. We do know a lot of things uh, uh, regarding different populations, but one of the things that we know for for longer is that the differences between species and between populations in different latitudes, for example, is very big. And 
by ourselves, only within our, our group's research, we were able to observe very, very distinct patterns that go even to the point of some of these beds being absolutely uh, carbon sinks, autotrophic all year round, like the ones in Brazil, for example. Others that may have a portion of the year, like the winter, um, passing through a period of uh, heterotrophy, where carbon is actually being produced rather than being absorbed, and others that are even in, in, a, in a more uh, difficult to define area. So, of course, with 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 um, with these uh, latitudinal, which are basically latitudinal changes, it is very very hard to extrapolate from one from one community from one population to to the next, and so. Ultimately, and the fact that it's not just us here in Portugal, but all the other groups working in these communities, in these in these organisms that are observing the same patterns, that brings about uh, the, the the biggest reason for this workshop, which is which was to gather the people that are working on this uh, on 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 rodent beds, particularly the ones that are observing these uh, carbon fluxes and how do they vary along the year trying to harmonize our results, trying to get a broader picture that can lead us to a, to a more uh, global interpretation of the role of these algae in the global ocean carbon cycle. That was, that was that's what we try to do with the, with the workshop. Brilliant. Yeah, that sounds, um, that sounds like a great topic and obviously um, very interesting findings, I suppose. Um, so that leads me to the next question as well. What what were the main findings that emerged from from this workshop, and maybe what what was the roadmap that you established for the next couple of years? Mm -hmm. well, uh, well, first of all, th this is of course something we are still working on. Uh, I mean, the the, the outcomes, uh, the physical outcomes themselves. But it was very very interesting that we. We set together the workshop with uh, with with this idea, and in the end, we had more outcomes than than what we expected. Uh, this was actually very curious because regarding the 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 questions that were sort of predefined where we wanted to get, we actually got to um, a very nice um, sum up of the of the state of the art. So where where are we now? And this is of course the first thing to to have very clearly defined. And we have a. a um, um, a review paper being worked on this uh, on 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 this matter, reviewing everything that has been done worldwide regarding the status of the knowledge on the carbon cycling in rodelid beds. Well, this is the first uh, the first the, the first uh, foundation uh, stone for the way forward, uh, and then we wanted to also um, harmonize ways of. How are we going to describe new rodelid beds? Because this is when I mentioned this before. So we are finding rodelid beds every 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 day, and of course every group has its own method, that its own approach to to mapping and to identifying and characterizing the beds. And what we wanted to do was also, and we worked on that direction, having sort of a handbook, uh, sort of a commonly agreed protocol. To which different groups doing mapping in different regions can obtain results, can obtain maps that are interactable and that can be analyzed uh, together so that we can have a global bulk of information with, that is more than the sum of different parts, but actually information that can be uh, set together. Um, 
also a number of uh, recommendations that are being worked uh, to deliver to funding agencies, to environmental managing uh, agencies, in the sense of, uh, first of all, uh, raising awareness to the importance and relevance of these beds, and also for the need of these uh, of the environmental agencies, namely, to engage in efforts to monitor and 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 preserve these ecosystems, which are already somehow some of these species are already included in the in the in the habitats uh, European directive. Uh, others are not, because at the time it was written, we knew much less species than we than we know now, uh, and so maybe that needs to be revised. But also, uh, and this was very interesting, we we got to the conclusion, although it, although it was not like a, something we anticipated, that these habitats have a very, very relevant, uh, what we call a cascading effect, which means that the, the very existence of a varroid bed in itself promotes in a cascade way the, the occurrence and the development of associated uh, populations. And we and this ranges from other algae that that that, that use rhodolites as a substrate for fixation in mobile substrates. For example, this is very very important. We found this like in in Madeira Archipelago and in the Canary Islands, where most of the uh, uh, sea bottom is uh, is is muddy or sandy. Whenever we have a rhodolite bed, biodiversity increases a lot because we have a lot of other organisms that take advantage of this three-dimensional uh, structure, the morphological complexity of rhodolites to, uh, to nest, to, to seek shelter, yeah, and also to seek food. Uh, and so what, what we call this cascading effect, and there's numerous examples regarding the association with, with seaweeds, with uh, invertebrates, with fish larvae, etc. And that was like a but like a sort of a, a revelation, and we actually have a very nice paper being uh, being written. It's actually it's like it probably actually be the first one coming out because it's quite uh, it's almost done, and that showcases a number of examples worldwide um, of this of this cascading effect of this uh, ecosystem promoting uh, effect. So yeah, we're quite uh, thrilled. Uh, I think that scientifically, for sure, the workshop exceeded our our expectations, especially. Because, I mean, it's a small thing. Uh, if you think about the, and you're probably going to ask me that, but if you think about this, the, the scope and the, the scale of the funding that, uh, that we can yeah. obtain for a foresight workshop, I've, I found it absolutely amazing how much we were able to do with so little. Yeah. Just That's... by doing, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was, I was actually about to ask you that as the next question, but yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, that is very true because I know that obviously the foresight funding isn't, um, it's not that much money, but you've achieved so much already, which is quite fascinating. Um, and my next follow-up question to that would have been also, um, now that you have so many findings already um, and have established the roadmap for the future, have you applied for additional funding um, to further develop this research or do you have any, any um, plans of doing so? Yes, uh, yes, definitely. So we haven't applied yet because I know there was no opportunity yet, no, in terms of calls. But uh, this was this was one of the things that we had envisaged, and it's actually stated in the in the workshop uh, objectives, and we we pretty much followed on that, which was, and this this goes back. It's it's quite a quite a natural follow up because it goes back to the to to the point where I mentioned that we wanted to create uh, uh, to gather people 
And actually what we managed to create was a consortium, basically mm -hmm. of the different groups yeah. in Europe that, that are working on this and working three days in a, in a room with the same people, although we know we knew each other from, from previous meetings, but it's, 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 um, the proximity environments of working uh, so closely for such uh, in an, in such an intense way, it created uh, clearly the foundations for a consortium, for using which we want to apply to to other to other funding uh, to other funding uh, sources. Namely, uh, I mean, like your, your projects, of course, a research project would be uh, pursuing this uh, this topic of of mapping would be something that uh, everybody is already uh, trying to prepare. Um, in terms of funding instruments, I find it that um, European-wide, although there's nowadays a number of um, a number of different calls, the size of our consortium and the size of the of the research, the dimension of the research that we feel that we need to make, is hard to encompass in in the in the current format of European calls. We find that most of the calls are just too big for this kind of for this kind yeah. of. I remember that um, maybe 10, 12 years ago, there was a format which was the IP pro, um, uh, form. I don't say, I'm not sure if it was IP, but there was a sort of an intermediate dimension where you would gather four or five international partners and would be able to apply for intermediate range funding, like in the range of 1 million, 2 million euros. And you could have, it would be manageable for small research groups together and form consortiums, consortiums to apply for this. Nowadays, it's much harder. Nowadays, you need a very, very big uh, uh, project, which for us is probably very difficult to 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 achieve because the community itself is not is not that big. Not that big, yeah. Um, the the first thing that's what we are actually working on for not for this year but for next year's call is to actually propose a cost action. Uh, we we found we had we had uh, I was part of uh, the management committee of a, of a cost uh, action a few years back on seagrasses. It was also a, a fantastic instrument to bring people together, and we managed to do some to to do some research and to do some training, which is also super important. Uh, and that is something that we feel like um, can be maybe the most promising uh, instrument for us, because this is another. Um, uh, of course, very pressing uh, need is to have mm -hmm. new people in the community, and for that we need to provide training opportunities. And so, although we try to offer grants and to our fellowships and jobs in in our individual labs, but having 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 these in the in the in the context of a wider community, and the possibility of interchanging um, uh, the students and, and and junior scientists between labs, that is very enriching, and it's something that we need to. We need to do because we need more people working on this. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, that sounds great. Um, the, yeah, I definitely agree. It um, it would be great to get more people involved on this on this research topic. Have you talked to policymakers, or is there a plan of involving uh, policymakers um, into this research project as well? Um, and any plan on how the foresight workshop could maybe contribute uh, to turning this research into actionable insights uh, for policy. Um, I just know that you mentioned the handbook earlier. Is that something that could be made actionable or is there any plans of that? Well, we, we do want to do that, um, mm -hmm. but our, our, 
our work now in terms of the workshop, it's it's already limited because the workshop is uh, it's done, <laughs> it's done and yeah, dusted. Yeah, yeah. But we had this uh, this idea from a from a pilot uh, project that we had that my group had in um in in Madeira actually where we had a successful example of how from from also a small project it was a life uh, life uh, life for best project so a very small you know this funding that is for the for the outermost regions in Europe yeah we managed to to use uh, one of those projects to map and characterize the rodelid beds in in Madeira. In the marine protected areas of, of, of Madeira. And we involved the Nature Conservation Authority directly from the start in the project. And so they right. were partners and they helped us, um, I mean, contextualizing basically what was important for them. And we produced, it was one of the deliverables of the project. We actually produced a mapping and monitoring and conservation plan for the, for the Nature Conservation Institute. It was one of the deliveries of, of the project. And and that was that was a very a very uh, significant achievement because it was very welcomed by uh, by the authorities because often and this is the case they have the means to 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 do monitoring and to do conservation but often as it is the case in these um, lesser known um, ecosystems they don't have the know how so basically they, they wouldn't know mm -hmm. what to do so we basically created for them a monitoring plan a detailed monitoring plan. And we trained the um, the nature um, conservation agencies, so the, the the technicians, the vigilance, so the staff that actually the people that actually go to the field and are able to implement this. And because they already have in these marine protected areas um, a number of uh, populations, a number of species that they monitor, basically what we did was to add like a a, a ready made package so that. Here you have this new package just added to your monitoring, uh, global monitoring effort, and they did, and it worked very well. So we, our 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 strategy now is try to expand on this. Yeah. Uh, this is of course something that needs to be done at the regional and mostly at, at the national level. Yeah, that's that's great. I didn't know that you already had such a good example where you try to do exactly that, involve policymakers from the start. And I think that's that's a very good um way of doing it because um as we all know, if if the research doesn't land with the policymakers at the end, it's often lost. And so I think that's a brilliant idea um and a very good method of doing it is to involve the the local or regional policymakers or national policymakers right from the start. Um, and it would be great to see that scaled up on a on a European level. Um, so yeah, that's that's great. Thanks so much for those insights. Um, we've come to our last question for today, which is um which we always ask at the end of the podcast, which is very very relevant to especially to the young aspiring researchers out there is what advice or what suggestions would you give to your younger self if you were, you know, starting up as a researcher? <laughs> That's a difficult question. It's the most <laughs> difficult question <laughs> of them all. <laughs> I would say um, try to get involved and lo look around for for the global community. Uh, don't stick to uh, don't stick to your to your small topic and uh, looking go out of the bench look around uh, because what what i found over the years <laughs> many years after being being young 
was that often it's it's more uh, um, it's very enriching to look even outside of science. I mean, to look into have, have a more holistic perspective on where where science uh, fits in, and try to see where your work fits in science and then in the community at all times because. I think that gives sense of purpose, uh, and nowadays I think that is, for me at least, it's it's extremely important. That's a very good tip, and I think it's very very interesting and relevant to a lot of the young researchers out there. Um, so thanks a million for that. Um, and that's brought us to the very end of this podcast episode. Uh, thanks again for all your insights and tips and um the great research that you've done. It's very interesting to learn more about it. Um, and yeah, what what we learned today and something that I found very interesting is that their abundance of this algae is is very like largely underestimated um, and that they're also a very cryptic group in that it is not yet maybe very clear what their ecosystem function is. As you were saying, like some of those um, species, it seems they are more carbon sinks. Um, while others seem to release more uh, CO2 than they absorb. Um, and what I thought was really interesting as well, um, one of my main takeaways from, from very early on in the interview is where you said climate change is a simple term for a very complicated matter. Um, and that's very true. Um, and you mentioned especially the fact that although we have things like ocean acidification and marine heat waves on a global scale. There are also, yeah, local um, stressors that are different depending on which country you're in or which um, marine area you're in, um, which makes it obviously way harder to predict the the combination of of those multiple stressors. Um, and that that is quite a big challenge. Um, and I think that's a good note to end on. Um, thanks again for, for joining us today and for those great insights. And I'm very excited to see what, what comes from, from your research and where you go next. <laughs> Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you too. <laughs> <laughs>